All right, church, let's grab our Bibles and let's head for the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. And I know I caught you off guard, didn't I? You thought we were heading for the book of 1 Peter, but we're not. We're heading for the book of Romans first, Romans chapter 7. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word. We keep some in the back just in case you got out of the house without yours. There's a note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that as well because that will be of help along the way. Now, as we come to Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church family in the first century, and he says to them at one point, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 7, in a moment of really candid transparency from his own life, he says this, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Christian, can you relate to this struggle that Paul is talking about from his own life? Can you relate to this? Yeah, you can. You all, we all can. We can all identify with this war because we wage this war with sin in our own lives every single day of our Christian life. And Paul asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's a resounding amen that comes from all of us. Thanks be to God for Jesus who delivers us. To be a Christian is to fight a war internally with sin and with temptation. It is to battle with sinful desires that could ruin and bring us uh, to an end if it were not for the grace of God. We truly want to live out before an unbelieving world the gospel. We want to live out before before Idlewild the good news of a Jesus who saves But it is a battle. It is a war every single day. Internally, it's D-Day every day. We want to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Outwardly, we want to be reflecting Jesus. But man, it is a war. That's what Paul says. It's a war that he fights every day. Let's leave Romans chapter 7. Let's head to the book that uh, we are spending time in a lot these days. Let's go back now to the right in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. If I could ask you to join me there. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because Peter wants to talk with us today about this war that Paul mentioned in Romans 7. This ongoing struggle with sin in our lives. And why it is a war, church family, that we must win by God's grace and by his power at work in us. This is all part of our commitment to study the book of 1 Peter together, verse by verse this series is titled exiles and uh, if you should be joining us maybe for the first time today we are taking on 
verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Now recall that Peter is writing to first century Christians who are being persecuted intensely by their surrounding culture simply because they have determined to live for and believe in and love the Lord Jesus. And so Peter wants to encourage these Christians who are being persecuted. He wants to call them to stay the course, to not give up, to fight the fight all the way to the very end, no matter how hard the persecution might get. And so he's kind of like a coach who is encouraging his team to stay in the fight until the very end. Now, last time, Peter blew his ancient readers and us away by telling us in verses 9 and 10 who we really are by virtue of the mercy of God that has been poured out into our lives through Jesus Christ. And what an encouraging reminder this was to us last week. I had several who came up to me after service last week and said, man, it is so good to be reminded of who I am. Verse 9 says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's personal treasured possessions. That's you today. That is me. This is who we really are, Peter says. And he says in verse 9 that we have been given the amazingly great privilege of proclaiming that God has done an extraordinary work in our lives, that he has done a heroic work. We talked about it last time. And that we have the privilege of proclaiming God as our hero, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has rescued us from eternal spiritual darkness and brought us into the light of the Lord Jesus. That's our privilege, to proclaim the excellencies of God. And so because this is who we are, verse 9, and this is what we're supposed to be doing, Peter says this in verses 11 and 12. New ground for us this morning, church family. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war, there's our term out of Romans 7, that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We'll stop right there. Brothers and sisters, verses 11 and 12 are in many ways the the turning point in Peter's letter. From here on, Peter is going to essentially write about what proclaiming the excellencies, the heroic salvation work of God in our lives, what that looks like for you and me individually and what it looks like for us as a church family called IBC. When the culture you live in grows increasingly hostile to you as a Jesus follower, what do you do to most effectively proclaim Jesus? What do you do? Well, Peter's going to try to answer that question really for the rest of the letter. He wants to do that. And so he's he's going to offer several practical suggestions to Christians living in tough times for how do you do verse 9 and proclaim this amazing God that we serve to our community where we live. How do we do that? Starting now with verse 11 and really for the rest of the letter, 
Peter's going to say in a variety of ways that we will proclaim God best and Jesus most plainly and powerfully, not by what we say, but by how we live. That's going to be the message. We're going to proclaim God most effectively, not by, so much by what we say, but by how we live. And though Peter won't say it quite like this, he's going to repeatedly affirm this truth. I've put it on your note page as well. The single most powerful tool of evangelism is not the words we say, but the life that we live. Would you agree with that, brother, sister in Jesus? That's the truth. That's the truth as Peter presents it here. We, we silence a hostile culture and lead them to at least consider the claims of Jesus by the way that we live out the word of God and the truth of Jesus day to day. That's how we proclaim the excellencies of God. Not by what we say, but by how we live. Alexander McLaren, a revered Scottish pastor from the past, writes these words. He says, the world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say that they belong to God's family. That would be us. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. In fact, what they know of Jesus, they know mostly from watching us. Yeah? This same truth, if we were to present it negatively, might sound like this. Some professing Christians speak so loudly by what they do that no one wants to hear what they say. Is that true? That sadly is true. So Jesus affirms this this, this thought on the positive side that the single most powerful tool of evangelism is not our words but our life as we live it out before our community. He affirms that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And these would be words that you would know well. If you've been in the church for very long, you have spent time in this place. Jesus says, you, all of us, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, what's the next word, church? See your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, is this not exactly what Peter says in verse 12 of chapter 2? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? See your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live in such a way as to silence the hostile and compel at least some unbelieving people to seriously consider the claims of Jesus, whether they are true or not. The Holy Spirit's call to you and me here is to live a kind of life that makes Jesus' message God died for sinners, he rose from the dead, and he's coming again to to make that message worthy of investigation. Live in such a way that that others are going to want to check out your Jesus. 
That's the call. And this this is why, church family, I, I titled this study this morning, When Evangelism Doesn't Look Like Evangelism. Too often, I believe, church family, when we hear the word evangelism, we instantly think, oh, verbally sharing my life with Jesus with someone else. It's, it's talking. I'm going to have to talk about Jesus if I'm going to be doing evangelism. Many times we slide into that place of thinking that's what that word means. That's not what Peter's going to be thinking. Not here in this place. They'll come a little bit later here in chapter 3 where he's going to get into us talking about Jesus verbalizing our relationship with God and being able to do that clearly and effectively and, and, and cogently. But that's not what Peter's doing here in this moment. For him in this moment, evangelism begins with who we are and how we live in our culture, in our community. The words come later when we've earned the right to be heard by our life. Robert Layton, uh, another Scottish pastor, he lived in the 1600s. He writes these words. A holy life is a voice. A holy life is a voice. It speaks when the tongue is silent and is either a constant attraction or a perpetual reproof. That's good. And that's true. That is true. Here again is how Peter leads us into this essential truth. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. As odd as it may sound, evangelism begins here with who we are and what we are doing. What's going on on the inside of us as it relates to sin? And the temptation to sin, this this war that we fight every day, brother and sister. So that brings us then on your note page to the war within. Peter says, beloved, a word that he's very fond of. In fact, he'll use this word no less than eight times in his two letters. And he uses it to remind his readers, both ancient and current, that God loves, that that he loves us. I mean, that he really loves us. We're the beloved of God. Christians who are beat up and who are suffering for Jesus' sake need to hear this, need to be reminded of this. This word has the effect of of really setting the tone for what Peter wants to say. Since God loves you so much, beloved, will you not reciprocate that love by the way you choose to live your life? You love him back by how you live. I urge you, he says, I plead with you, I press in on you as sojourners and exiles. Now, here's the language from which we actually took the title for our study series, Exiles. We saw this word for the very first time in chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter says, I'm writing to you, elect exiles who are scattered all over Asia Minor, sojourner, exile. Same word, same, essentially the same meaning. Both mean someone who is, is living somewhere that is not their home. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. It's not your home. You're living where you don't belong. You are living where you don't fit in. 
You, you're not welcomed. You're not wanted. Your first and best home is somewhere else. As Christians, we are all exiles and sojourners in the sense that we live in this world, we do business in this world, we, we make friends and we do life in this world, but our sense of belonging is not really here. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Our citizenship is where, church family? It's in heaven, isn't it? We're citizens of a different place than this world. Citizens of heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our spiritual citizenship, our our hearts are with God and with his kingdom because that's our true home. That's where we're going to spend eternity. We're not part of this world. You know, whenever I go over to Ryan and Gail Hilgris' house, the first thing that I notice is this big flag that they have waving out at the front of their house. And it's a, it's a combination Michigan State and Iowa Hawkeyes flag. And I didn't know you could buy those that have the same, those, those two teams on one flag, but they've got one that's waving just like that. And, and even if I didn't know Ryan and Gail, what that flag tells me is that whoever lives in this house is not from here. Not from here. They, they, Ryan and Gail, they live in Idlewild. We're glad they live in Idlewild. But clearly that flag is saying that they have loyalties that reside outside of Idlewild. Well, the same should be able to be said of you and me, spiritually speaking. We live here in this world, but there are flags waving in our lives, in our hearts, over our house, if you will. We are sojourners and exiles. We are citizens of another world. And that's what Peter's saying. Do you recognize this? uh, There's a logo here. Do you recognize this logo? If you're a young person, you definitely recognize this logo. What does it stand for? Not of this world. That's right. Does does this symbol fly over your heart? The house called your heart today? Not of this world? By the way, beloved, this is one of the costs of the high calling that Jesus has in your life, that you are, in a sense today, homeless in this realm. We're all homeless in this world It's an unspeakable privilege to be exalted and rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light by the grace of God and the work of Jesus. It's it's an incredible privilege to be redeemed. It's a privilege to be made citizens of heaven. But the price of that privilege is to be homeless here. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. Why? Hey, it's not our home. We're not of this world. We don't belong in this place. Okay, so so how do we live then as citizens of another world, but in this world also? How do we live? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter urges us to go to war. He says, he says, confront the enemy within you. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
we ask, well, what are those? What are the passions of the flesh? Passion is a good word. Passion is a, is a, is a great word. We should be passionate people, don't you think? Fellow Christian, that we should be passionate? We should be passionate about who? About Jesus. We should be very passionate people. But, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. The passion he's thinking about is very different. It's the passion that comes from the flesh. There are sinful desires that reside in our fallen human nature that we all inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And the Holy Spirit tells us about these through the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 5, words you might know well, beginning at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh, they are evident. They are plain to anybody. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is a yucky list, isn't it? Now, that's a theological term, yucky, right? By saying, and things like these, Paul's essentially saying, and this list could go on and on and on. Kind of like a supernatural, etc., etc. Paul is saying, I could go on, but you get the idea. This is what the passions of the flesh look like. And Jesus will say very much the same thing in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Every human being who has ever lived other than Jesus is born with a heart that does these things. But the glorious good news is that Jesus died to give us a new heart, didn't he? He died to give us a new heart. He rose from the dead to prove his power over these passions that are in us. Though through Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we're saved. Our souls, which simply means the real us, has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus and we have a new life and we have a new heart that can say no to sin, but this new heart still resides incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. And that's why we wage war. Our heart wants to do what God wants, but our flesh, well, it has another agenda. And the two are fighting each other all the time. And that's why Paul can honestly say to us, as we noted at the very beginning in Romans 7, that he fights this war himself. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love God with my remade, new, no longer enslaved to sin heart. I love him. But, verse 23, I see in my yet unredeemed flesh another law. Waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my flesh, in my members. Peter could not be in any more agreement with Paul than he is right here. He says there is an internal war going on in the heart of every Christian. You know about this war. You fight it every day, as do I. 
On one side is the new person that Jesus is creating. This revolution is led by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. This side is the side of truth. This is the side of of love for God. This is the side of joy, obedience. It's the side that longs for the holy heart that, that Robert Layton writes about, that holy heart that's a loud voice. And on the other side are the remnants of the old regime residing in our flesh. This enemy is determined to resist and block and and distract and, and destroy us unless God intervenes. Peter calls it a war. And he calls it a war for a reason. In fact, the words that he uses, wage war, That is a strong term, and it means to carry on a protracted military campaign. Key word being protracted. Definitely not in view for Peter is the idea that as a Christian we fight a skirmish with sin here and occasionally over there. It's not talking about a single firefight. This is a long-term campaign, a long-term war with sin. It's interesting how Peter actually personifies the warfare, the passions of the flesh. It's almost like he turns those into a personality or to an army, a a rebel force, a a guerrilla force that's intending to capture and enslave and destroy. So this is to, we, we need to picture the idea of a continual aggression that is malicious and ongoing and it doesn't stop a an incessant search and destroy mission on the part of these fleshly passions to take us out. That's the reality. Every day, this is what's going on. Can you imagine being in a war, any war, and not knowing that you're in the war? Can you imagine that? Yet how many Christians don't even sense that they're in a war? Or, maybe to say it more fairly, they they don't take the war seriously. How many? A lot. How absurd would it be if there was some guy out looking for seashells on that Normandy beach in France on the morning of June the 6th, 1944, when the Allied forces invaded Europe? How absurd would that be? Some guy oblivious to the battle is out collecting seashells on the Normandy beach. How long do you think that guy lasts? Maybe 10 seconds, right? Maybe 10 seconds. But you know, I think there's Christians like that out collecting seashells when there's a war going on. Brothers and sisters, are you aware that there is a war that you are fighting every day. In the middle of this war, the single most powerful tool of evangelism we have is not the words that we say, but the life that we live. Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. So how do we fight this war? And not just fight this war, but win it. Brothers and sisters, how does that happen? Well, if you flip your note page over, let's allow God's word to to give us some warfare strategies that we can employ for this 
fight, this, this war. Now, Peter's not going to go in this direction. He's just giving us a general statement about the reality of the war. He doesn't intend in this moment to unpack that, but it's important that we do that a little bit here this morning. And, and, and unfortunately for us, time's not going to allow us to do a whole lot more here, but simply call these strategies to mind. And then I'm going to have to rely on you, maybe this week in your quiet time, to come back, take your note page, and go to these five places that we are going to consider, five or six, and, and, and just spend some time with these strategies of, of warfare that, that we've been given. Peter admonishes us, abstain from the passions of the flesh. The word that Peter uses here is a word word that means keep as far away as you can from these passions of the flesh. Stay away from them. Push them away. Don't go near them. Abstain. That's the idea. So how do we practically do that? Well, on your note page, several strategies. First, Be constantly living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit whom God has given to you as the seal of your salvation. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus, Jesus said, I'm going to give you my spirit to live in you. So that's where we begin. Galatians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul writes. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the what? Flesh. Could it be any more plain? Couldn't be any more on point. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. There's no rules. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Holy Spirit is ready at all times, brother, sister, to impart the character of Jesus to us. The fruit of the Spirit, if you will, out of which flows an abstaining from sin kind of life. A second strategy. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's just Galatians 5, repackaged, restated. But notice the last half of the verse. And make no provision for the flesh. That's the part I would ask you to linger on and maybe underline in your Bible. When I read this verse, it always reminds me of the story of three chauffeurs who were all applying for the job of being the new driver for a very rich man. And so the rich man had each chauffeur drive him uh, up onto a high bluff looking over the city. And on this high bluff, there was a sheer drop off, a cliff that went 300 feet straight down. And so he asked each in turn how close he thought that, that this driver thought that he could safely take the limousine to the edge of the cliff without going over. And so the first driver says, well, sir, I'm confident in being able to get your limousine within one foot of the edge of that cliff, and we'll be safe. Second driver comes up and he says, sir, it would be no effort for me to take this limousine within six inches of the edge of the cliff. You'd be safe. The third replies, when it was his turn, 
With all due respect, sir, if I were your chauffeur, I would keep this car as far away from the edge of that cliff as I possibly could. Who gets the job? <laughs> of course, that third chauffeur is the guy who gets the job. Brothers and sisters, too often Christians who don't take the war seriously try to see how close they can get to the edge of sin without going over, right? If you don't take the war seriously, that's what you do. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's a, that's a pure warfare strategy. Third, put on the armor that God has supplied you with. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. How does it begin? Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Man, in this passage, the Holy Spirit offers up no less than seven spiritual pieces of equipment that we have been given to do war with. We need to hang out there. We need to ask the question, am I armored up today? Am I armored up for the battle? Am I ready? A fourth war strategy, Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way holy? By living according to your, what's the word? By living according to your, your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands, your words. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can any Christian long survive the battle with sin if they are not in the word of God? How can that possibly happen? The word of God is our sword. But if we never handle the word from Sunday to Sunday, how in the world are we going to win the war? Got to hide the word in our hearts so that we have it, even when we don't have a Bible in our hand, right? That's how we do war. And although this is not a complete list of the strategies the scripture would offer up to us, a fifth strategy here, for us would be personal accountability to another brother or sister who's, who's fighting the battle, the war as well. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When your brother screws up, your sister screws it up, you go to them and you challenge them and you do that with gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Get time consistently with another Christian in your, in your circle of relationships and give that person permission to ask you the really hard questions that you don't want asked. Those are the questions. How are you living your life? And then you reciprocate and you ask your friend those questions as well. God did not make us church family, brothers and sisters, to be lone rangers. In fact, if you stop and think about it, the lone ranger wasn't alone, right? Just doing these five things will pitch the ongoing war in our favor every single time. The stakes are high for our personal lives, for our spiritual lives. Abstaining from, fleeing from, 
those passions, saying no consistently to sin's invitation to, to the flesh's enticements results obviously in our own personal daily sense of, of happiness and joy and fulfillment and this sense of I am, I'm walking in step with my God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The personal benefits to doing these things is great. But church family, this is not at all where Peter's thoughts are in this moment. Our personal benefit from living a holy life. He's not thinking about that. In fact, what he's really concerned about is how our passion to live a holy life reflects Jesus to a world that doesn't know him yet. That's what he's all about in this moment. The first line of witness and the testimony that we give to our community that Jesus is real and difference-making and should be checked out and believed, that's what he's thinking about. Flee, abstain from fleshly passions so that your life bears witness to Jesus to the people who don't know Jesus yet. Are we all getting this? This is where he's at. He's talking about evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. Remember, the secular world is hostile to Christian truth. We live as exiles right now here. What do we do with that? Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 11 flows right into verse 12. They are one thought in Peter's mind. Abstain from sinful choices and desires and live honorably before a watching world. You can't separate those two. Too often, brothers and sisters, I fear that we we look at our personal walk and our moral choices day to day and we think that's a private matter between me and God. How I do my Christian life is between me and God. There couldn't be more of a, of a falsehood. Because how you live your life is how you witness for Jesus. That's, it's, it's all about that. Peter has the, this perspective that, man, what I'm doing with my life is either speaking well of or ill of Jesus. That's a big deal. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles is, is just Peter's term for an unbeliever, somebody who hasn't put their faith in Jesus yet. And honorable is a Greek word that means truly good, beautiful. Your version might actually use the word excellent. Keep your, your conduct among the unbelieving excellent. When real, authentic, beautiful Christianity shows up, the secular community can't ignore that. It can't because it reveals itself in ways that can be seen and touched and, and felt and not just heard. In fact, beautiful Christianity looks an awful lot like the one another's that we find on the pages of our Bibles. A few weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, verse 22, we kind of unpacked the, uh, the one another's of Scripture. There's almost 40 of them. And I put them there uh, on your note page again for you. You would have seen this a few weeks ago. But we put it up on the screen as well. This is what a beautiful life looks like. 
as we live it out in our community. It's the one another's. It shows up as kindness. It shows up as, as generosity, as, as, as justice, as compassion, as sacrificial love. This is what a beautiful life looks like. It's not a call to perfection. The Bible reminds us we're going to all need grace every single day, but it's a call to a holy life marked by love for each other in this room, but also love for those outside this room. So that, Peter says, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now this sounds a little bit like doublespeak. Strive to live godly and some are going to accuse you of doing evil. Strive to live godly and some are going to say you're an evil person. Really? Really. Peter's first century readers understood this very well. And perhaps you understand it also quite well if you've ever dealt with negativity from your family or maybe from coworkers because you're a Christian. You understand what this feels like, how it works. And, and should we be, be surprised at, that, that this is the way it is? The only perfect human being who has ever lived was accused by the culture of being born illegitimately, of being uh, of, of plotting to overthrow the Roman government, accused of being demon-possessed, accused of blaspheming God, accused of being mentally ill. If this was Jesus' experience, how will it not be ours if we live godly? The early Christians were viewed with suspicion and hostility because they didn't conform to the culture's values. And they were labeled as evil for that. Here's a current illustration for you. Today, to believe that marriage is to be between a man and a woman is, in our culture, increasingly portrayed as being evil. As though you are hating. You're, you're bigoted if you hold to that position that marriage is between a man and a woman. In the eyes of our culture, it's evil. What do we do with that? Well, we do verse 12. So that when they speak against you as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, every Christian and every church in exile should exhibit a kind of life that is so different morally and so different relationally, reflecting the love of Jesus, that the culture we live in can't ignore the light that we throw off. Even if they think we're evil, they can't ignore the light. Again, as Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, what's the word? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The effect, Jesus says, is of the, of the light and of this beautiful life. It's evangelistic. It's, it's proclaiming Jesus without words. 
Church family, Peter has reminded us that real evangelism, most of the time, is not going to look like evangelism as we traditionally think of it. It looks like a life that fights hard against sin and is holy, not perfect, but battles every day to reflect a real Jesus. That's what evangelism looks like. Is there a place to talk about Jesus? Absolutely. But in this moment, does my life, does does your life, does, does our church life send a message to Idlewild, to those who don't know Jesus yet, that Jesus is worth looking into? Does our life do that? Individually and collectively. We are, we are the Bibles that Idlewild is reading right now. We are the sermons that Idlewild needs to hear. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, thank you, thank you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit for giving us this challenge from your word today. We all know the war is, is real And we struggle, we fight it every day. Oh, by your grace, by your grace, may we win the fight every day with the passions of our flesh. May we employ these these strategies that you have suggested to us, even today, from your word. And oh, may our light so shine from this place as we go out into our community that Idlewild cannot ignore. It cannot ignore us. It will be compelled to ask, who is this Jesus that you love and live for? And then we will share. All glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. Amen and amen. Church family, let's stand together.